Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. Today on Archiving AK, a conversation with Sarah Pace. Sarah is a cataloging librarian, also sometimes called a technical services librarian, who works for the Alaska Resources Library and Information Service, or ARLIS for short. ARLIS is co-located here with the UAA APU Consortium Library. ARLIS is a joint library representing a variety of governmental agencies in Alaska, both state and federal, including the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustee Council, the National Park Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Geological Survey, and the University of Alaska Anchorage. Basically, if you have a question about natural resources in Alaska, they probably have materials that can get you on your research way. Sarah has a contract position with the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustee Council, so she's here today to talk about their materials specifically and the work she's doing with them. A quick moment of background first. 30 years ago, on March 24, 1989, the Exxon Valdez, an oil tanker en route from Valdez, Alaska to Long Beach, California, struck Bly Reef in Prince William Sound. Nearly 11,000 gallons of crude oil were spilled into the sound over the next several days. The spill resulted in, among other things, a massive response effort and lawsuits. A $900 million civil settlement resulted in the founding of a state and federal partnership to oversee restoration of the ecosystem. That partnership is the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustees Council. Okay, so I'm not actually all that familiar with your job and what it is you do. Can you tell me a little bit about the types of things you do and a little bit about the history of the materials? Okay. Um, I was brought on as a cataloging librarian for the collection. Um, In truth, I wind up doing a lot more than just cataloging. Mm -hmm. I was brought in mid-project. It was partially done, and a lot of cataloging at that point had been complete. So I wind up doing a lot of coordinating coordinating the digitization that goes on. Okay. Um, we're trying to digitize as much of the collection as we're able to um, give it ownership, given copyrights, of course. Is that textual materials then, primarily, we've, that you're doing in-house digitization on? Or? We've got texts, we've got photos, we've got videos. We have photos. Do you have video transfer equipment then? We do. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, we can't get into super weed, weird stuff. R- right. But um, especially basic VHS to DVD, yeah. cassette to digitized. Right. Um, that we can certainly handle in-house. Um, but I coordinate that with my student workers and with some of the paraprofessionals in the okay. library. Okay. Um, I do a lot of finding aids. So when you say a finding aid, and I, you know, that, that means something, you know, archivists, it's, it's a generic term that archivists have adopted to mean something mm-hmm. fairly specific. Right. And that's not always fair to anybody else in the information professional world. That is very true. <laughs> so, so when you say a finding aid, what does that mean to you within the context of this collection? So I inherited a gigantic closet and a bunch of filing cabinets. Right. We're pretty sure we know what's in it, but <laughs> why don't we figure out what's in it, and then we can complete the collection, and it's nice, tidy, tied with a bow. 
Okay. know exactly what's there. So I basically do a giant list and including as much information as I can. Okay. Um, so location, whether it be file cabinet or whether it be shelf, description of what it is, mm -hmm. um, perhaps the file folder name or something like that, mm -hmm. um, any pertinent data. I prefer doing them in Excel because Excel is searchable and sortable. Right. Um, but it's So a spreadsheet kind of inventory. Very much an inventory, but taken, I think, to a deeper level than just an inventory. Okay. With the idea that this is going to be used to find something, used to browse and go, oh, here's what you have. Oh, this this is what I want. Right. Now, do you anticipate that your users will, will go to those and say, okay, I need things in file drawer three, the 15th folder down the line, or are they going to be coming to you with a, a little more generic and you're going to say, okay, we have materials on this topic. Here's kind of our listing. It, do you want to narrow that down any, or is it going to be, you're going to be bringing them boxes, or are you going to be bringing them a folder? My hope would be either, that okay. if they know exactly what they want, um, that we can drill down and bring them that folder okay. and serve them that way. Otherwise, if they just want to browse, that we can bring them the box, that we can bring them the key to the filing cabinet drawer, mm -hmm. and that they've got a list that they can tell browse, browse that. So the things that have already been cataloged and the things that are in the in the Alaska Library catalog that are like items, reports, and so on and so forth, are those cross-referenced within these lists, or are they? Is there pointers back and forth between these other lists, or because we all know market catalog records are not really built for inventory lists. No, <laughs> no. <clears throat> I was trying to be polite about that. <laughs> It's been a challenge. So, so how do you kind of get the connection there so people know if they're actually, they see this one report in the Alaska Library Catalog, they probably shouldn't stop there. Right. Um, there's a mark record that handles each, or eventually will be a mark record that handles each discrete collection. Oh, okay. And then when you bring up that record, it's like, okay, there's this body of work here, and then there's a link within that mark record to that Excel spreadsheet. Gotcha. So they can okay. see exactly what is in. And we're not built, all the collections don't have them yet. Right. That's the goal. Um, so something like a Mark 856, forgive me, that's the only Mark. It's an 856 mark. line. Yeah, it's the only Mark code I have memorized. And, and that's just because for decades I've had to deal with, you know, yeah. online finding aids. That's and exactly pointing what people it is, to them. Okay. Do you find people actually follow those? Because in my experience, they don't go off and look at them. No. <laughs> The hope is that we would also have a finding aid on the website. This got right. it broken down. If you're interested in this, interested in this, interested in this. Right. Um, and and people might then approach that in a different way. So you right. get you get more of the, the search engine type of folks coming in via right. the website as opposed to the people who are starting out with the library and the library catalog. The eventual hope is both. Um, we're certainly right. not there yet. Right. But that's kind of what I'm pressing towards. Okay. So how long has this collection kind of been in existence since 89? I mean, I, I honestly don't know much of the history of the trustees. We've got stuff that goes back to the days after the spill, so right. late March 89. Um, those initial reports, those initial things that were coming out, and then um, we've got stuff that's pre-trustee council and those mm -hmm. investigations, and then as the trustee council coalesced, the things that they began to sponsor that they began to fund. So we've got the whole range. That's a fairly comprehensive history time-wise of the okay. event and the fallout and the research and the damage that was done and the cleanup and kind of that whole whole breadth of. Okay. Yeah, because I've never really had a sense of the scale 
or the scope. I mean, I've known it's been there for some time. Yeah. It's a pretty extensive. Right. That's cool. It's good to have those resources. So what is your background then? My background is librarianship. Okay. So I went to school, decided halfway through library school I wanted to be a cataloger. Uh-huh. So my background is in cataloging and metadata. Okay. So I'm learning the archive thing as I go. Right. Which it's, does it's very, very fun. <laughs> we like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Almost wishing I would have tracked that instead, but okay. twenty twenty. I understand. Well, actually, you're probably more employable as a librarian than an archivist. There's not a whole lot of archival jobs out there. That was my sense. Yeah, that's very much the case. I mean, as hard as it is to get hired in librarianship, I mean, you look at the relative membership of ALA. Yes. And then, you know, the American Library Association and SAA, which Society of American Archivists might have crossed Mm -hmm. 6,000. You know, that's... You know that's just representing a totally different job market. Oh, definitely. So you're working with the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustees Council. Do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. What kinds of things are in these materials? There's a huge body of scientific research. Okay. All the research that the council funds um, comes back several years later from the scientists in the form of reports. Do you get the raw data then, or just the reports? We have some raw data. Most of the raw data is the initial investigations from the spill in 89. Right. So the things like the looking over the beaches and Mm -hmm. inspecting every beach to see. Um, We've got the records of the sea otters Mm -hmm. as they went through the sea otter treatments. We do have some raw data, but a lot of it is the finished reports coming from the scientists. Okay. Okay. And then we've got a body collection of just literature that was published on the spill. Books that were published. We've got the technical reports from the oil companies and the safety reports, and this is what our plan was. Just a lot of, just very much, very materials related to this bill. So probably leaning heavily toward what librarians and archivists often end up calling like gray lit, I guess. Not truly published, published, but they're a little more published than, say, a piece of correspondence. Yep, definitely accurate. It's kind of that middle stage. We've got all the legal files, too, which is what I'm currently working on. Ooh, that... Sounds like a lot. I'm guessing that's pretty copious. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So of the ones that have been made accessible and are getting used, what would you say some of the most used items have been? Definitely our photos. Okay. We've got a huge body of photos sitting on Flickr, and those do get pinged every couple of months for people wanting reprints. Right. Um, we've got a lot of media footage, mm-hmm. both VHS copies of... Um, the news reports, people mm-hmm. out there with their camcorders checking the beaches out. Right. We've got a huge body of thematic and beta tapes of the original mm-hmm. news footage. Mm-hmm. And those get pinged quite a bit, especially around the big anniversaries. Right. The 20th anniversary, the 30th anniversary. <laughs> All those numbers. People even... wanting to put together retrospectives. Right. Um, those get tapped an awful lot, too. So... With the with the, the the less accessible, shall we say, formats like mm-hmm. Umatic or Beta, how do you provide access to those? Officially, we don't. It's okay. the VHSs that we try to digitize for people and get those okay. get those out. We know we've got the raw footage. We're struggling with how to deal with it. Right. And part of our struggle and part of the current project is we have it. How do we get it out there? Because we right. know there's valuable stuff there. Right. And of course, the VHSs thirty years later are in. Not great shape. Uh, yeah, you're lucky they're lasting 30 years. So it's how do we preserve those before they degrade further? Right. And then knowing we've got this gold mine of raw footage, how do right. we get that accessible? Right. 
Is that something that can be grant funded? I mean, I, we all have the struggle, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all take these materials in, and realistically, we don't have in-house capacity or mm-hmm. very often don't have the budgets, mm-hmm. especially in this particular budget climate, which yes. has been pretty yes. appalling. And so going out, you, you end up having to look for external funding for stuff like that. Is that something that, that you're probably going to have to do? Or do you think that at some point internal funding to have these things digitized will... Because, I mean, obviously... You know, digital in almost every other respect is never the preservation media, but for video, it has to be. Right. <laughs> everything degrades. Yeah, and video's got such a short lifespan right. in comparison. So. And it's so much more accessible than, you know, a beta tape from the oh, 80s right. that there's six players in the state that can deal with it. Right, right. I think it would be a good spot for a grant. That's certainly way over my head. Right, yeah. But if we really wanted it done, it sh- hypothetically could be. Right. That's probably a sooner rather than later thing, huh? Yeah, those poor tapes. They're not <laughs> stored well either. <laughs> so, so those are the, yeah, I, and I can totally see why those people tend to go for the visual. Mm-hmm. So the photographs and that. And um, that spill was so visual. And right. it's the visual stuff that's the heartache, not the scientific research. Right. So what kind of users do you then get? Are they, is it media requests? Obviously for some of the media, I would assume that's what it is, especially with the anniversaries. It's researchers. Um, We get authors and writers coming in. Okay. My favorite is sitting reference desk and you get the 12 year old and somewhere in Montana that's doing a book report. Right. That has managed to find us and is asking us so we can send him, you know, this body of material to help. Actually, I always like those. Those are kind of fun. There are. They're cute. And then they send you the report four months later. And it's... Well, and if you train them early. Yes. 15 years from them when they become a professional researcher. Yes. Then they know what they're doing. Yes. <laughs> um, I love working with the junior hires. Yeah. And then our list, of course, is Fishing Games Library. Right. And so we've got the body of Fishing Game, Fish and Wildlife, Forest Service, all those scientific researchers that use it that also have access to that collection. Right. I don't know if this is a fair question. <laughs> well, I know. What What is it about doing this kind of thing that you like? What is it about that appeals to you? Whether whether the, the topic of the collection, mm-hmm. which I have to admit, I think it's sometimes, even in the holdings we have on, mm-hmm. on the Exxon Valdez oil spill, just is so depressing. My sense of humor has gotten very black. Oh, yeah, I imagine it would be. But is it is it content? Is it the the actual work? What what are the elements of it that appeal to you most? It's the media. It's the various things. So much of it is putting together puzzle pieces. Right. And it's this huge stack of reports. We have no idea what they are. We have no idea what they where they fit. Mm-hmm. And digging in and figuring out how those pieces fit together. Right. And kind of figuring out that complete picture of how they fit in. And doing the research, and that's the part I really enjoy. Okay. So where do you go to when you have to do the research? Because, I mean, you've got the body of research there. Is it just going through the materials you have, or do you have to tap external sources too? If I tap an external source, usually I'm going back to either my supervisor, Uh who works directly with the trustee council. Right. And then she's got people within the trustee council and within that scientific community that she can tap. Okay. So I do have a food chain I can send it off. (laughs) Um, Who wrote this and why? (laughs) Some of it I just do a lot of Googling. Right. Trying to figure out where things fit. Right. Okay. But when Google goes back to you... Yeah, I ran into that this morning. I was trying to track something down, and I kept hitting hits for our own finding aid, and it was like, that wasn't exactly what I wanted. (laughs) But, you know, on on the other aspect of that is, it's good to know that you 
you have something that's available, yes. findable, yes. <laughs> right? And the first thing we learned in library school is if you can't find it, you can't use it. Right. So it's how do we keep things findable so they can be usable. And if you're finding it, it means other people are too. Yes. So that's the good part. Yes. So you work the ref desk at Arliss. Yes. Fairly often. I think I see you when I go by pretty regularly. Usually Tuesday afternoons is my show. Oh, well, then I must walk by on Tuesday afternoons and not other days of the yeah. week. <laughs> but there's always extra shifts. Right, scattered as people take leave and Absolutely. things like they do. Um, what is it, whether it's your users or people you haven't seen yet, um, what is it you really wish people understood about the research process, especially with collections like this? I wish they knew how to ask good questions. Okay. Because so often they come in, I want this. And they're talking around what they want and talking around what they want. Right. And often they want something just a little bit different. Right. And if you can figure out what that thing is in the first place, it saves you a lot of spinning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's always the challenge is it's why it's called a reference interview in all of it our is. schooling. It <laughs> is. Because you're sort of interviewing around until... Until you actually figure out what it is. Do you ever find that people ask for one thing when what they really need is something else and they just don't know it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of what I deal with at the desk is greater Arla stuff. Mm-hmm. So questions that aren't related to this bill right. that are very much outside of my area of expertise. Right. So I'm trial by fire learning how to use the rest of that collection and help patterns. So how do you how do you mitigate that? I mean, because that's a, that's a standard problem I think for any discipline specific librarian or for an archivist who of course is representing more than one discipline or topic yeah. area in their archives. I mean, I'm pretty sure when you walked into this job, you were probably not an expert on the Exxon Valdez oil spill. I could be wrong about that, but um, <laughs> so how do you, what what kind of things work for you to really get that exposure? Is it just the kind of reactive? Okay, I've got this question. I have to figure it out now, and that teaches you something. It does. Or is, is there anything else that you do that that helps you kind of get to where you feel a little more confident on the rest of ref desk? Because I know that's an issue for us all the time. Honestly, there's an amazing team downstairs. Okay. And ref desk winds up being a team effort. Mm-hmm. And knowing of the librarians and the staff downstairs in Arliss, um, who the experts are in each little pocket. Right. And if it's this type of question, oh, I, I can go to this person. Oh, if it's a mining question, oh, this person. Right, right. Um, yeah, you do have, because you have basically one representative for each major collection that makes up the right. artist collection. So it's knowing who to ask mm-hmm. and then gently passing off a pattern to to the next person. Right. Okay. And then hopefully hanging around so I learn how to do it the next time. <laughs> Don't have to pass it off. Yeah. Because <laughs> not everybody's there all the time. No, but it's a great team and it's been a great team to learn from. That's That's cool. So, as, I mean, you've probably had your, in fact, that's why I was suggested to talk to you as opposed to anybody else about this collection is because you've had your hands in it more than probably anybody else. As you've been going through it, do you think there's any part of it that you think should be, could be used more than maybe it has been? Because I think we all go through this, mm-hmm. you know, we know our collections at least to a point. Mm-hmm. And there's this really cool collection that so much use could be made of or this really cool piece of it that, that nobody touched and it could be really frustrating mm-hmm. from the archivist side point of view or the librarian side point of view it's like why are nobody why is nobody using this and it can be a failure in description sometimes but sometimes yeah. it's just people aren't researching that topic yeah so is there really kind of anything in there you 
you kind of think is underutilized that really has a lot of value and people just haven't quite picked up on that yet? A lot of what we're finding is stuff that we didn't know was in the back room that was really cool. Yeah. That we'd love to figure out how to just get out there. Right. So they're not utilizing it because we had no idea we had it. Right, right. Um, we went digging. We've got 10 banker boxes of oil samples. Oh, Little wow. jars of sloppy and dirty. Whoa. Like, wow, those could have some cool things for um, educational aids. Right. We've got a lot of publications that are just very neat, tidy, lots of pictures, well explained, mm-hmm. and lots of copies. Um, so it's a question of if those could get out. Right. Um, maybe an education kit, maybe do more with working with the schools. Right. Um, lots, of, lots of things that could be used that are really good aids, really good descriptions of what happened really good descriptions of the fallout from it, and we're sitting on them. And the question is, how can we get those used and deployed? Yeah, and isn't that the challenge? And Because I don't think people think, oh, Exxon Valdez oil spill, and they might not even get to the trustees from there. No. But, but if they do, they wouldn't necessarily think, oh, this could be a component of a K-12 education program. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is something that can, be part, can become part of a curriculum. Right. And so how do you how do you get that out there? That's And none of us are educators, but there's so much curriculum potential for some right. of this. And how would we do that partnership? Right. And start getting these materials out and used and appreciated. Right. That is the huge question, isn't it? And it's stuff we didn't know we had until six months ago. Right. So it's pretty new. So how do you get no, okay, this is completely not where I was going, but you, you piqued my interest here. The oil spill samples mm-hmm. are they in glass jars? Yes, and I'm very, well, that's very, good. very paranoid <laughs> when I have them on my desk. <laughs> I imagine so. I have smelled that out of the jar, and I do not want that in my office. No, so we no. handle very gently. Well, glass is probably going to be the long-term preservation mechanism. I mean, are they corked? It, are they? They're like little screw screw little jars, screw little jars, which are very well sealed until I, you know, bump them off my desk. <laughs> Is the fear. <laughs> yeah, let's not have that happen. No. <laughs> we got handed, one of our collections came in with an oil and water soaked paper plate that apparently somebody just dipped into Ew. the sound during cleanup and then put it Ew. in a Ziploc. And I have to tell you, so 80, 87, 89, what year? I'm blank. 89. 89. So we're, 13, we're 30 years out, right? Yeah. yeah. This is one of those anniversary years. Mm-hmm. We're 30 years out. And I have to tell you, this Ziploc bag has not substantially degraded despite holding petroleum, which is a shock to me. That's more frightening. It, well, it is. And we also have a Nalgene bottle yeah. that has water picked up from the sound. Yeah. And I'm just looking at them going, you know, this Ziploc is not going to last for forever. We're no. going to have to figure if we even retain it long term. It may be yeah. retain it as long as you can and then just call it quits when it's gone yeah. past that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was really shocked to see that that Ziploc bag just hadn't dis- dissipated, really. I mean, yeah. I would have figured that would have happened. The paper plate's even still there, which is surprising. Um, the Nalgene bottle, I think, will probably hold up a little longer. Nalgene's are built pretty stout. Yeah, but but even so, anytime you stick a petroleum product in combination with mm-hmm. with plastic of any kind, I, I, yeah. I'm not so sure about that. You know, these are things. So they're in little jars. And now I'm starting to think about November and the earthquake. What kind of housing do you have these little things in? Mercifully, they're compact shelving. Yes. So during the earthquake, nothing moved too much. Right. Um, 
after the earthquake, we all took a look and went, oh, long term, this is a very bad idea. Right. Because um, they're just sort of packed in newspaper and banker boxes. Gotcha. Um, so well, yeah, you wouldn't planning. even want to drop the box. I mean, no. that would be a disaster. So it's planning long term, what is a better way of doing this? Right. And then given what we have to work with. Right. You know, what's within our means to be able to do. Well, and especially with, you're you're always playing this guessing game with the future, which is how much are you going to spend on something? And is that is that expenditure going to be potentially justified by use someday? Right. Right. So is it, you know, if you do save all these samples, and I presume they're loaded with uh, or labeled with metadata as to where they were sampled and when? Or? Most of them are fairly well labeled. Wow. So there's definitely scientific use for somebody in research. Right. Again, can we get these out and get these used? Right. So they're at least, their presence at least serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's potential use. And then, and then how do you achieve that? Right. And that's... Preservation of oil samples was really nothing I ever thought of before I moved to Alaska no. and suddenly realized we had some in, coming in in collections. Um, I know you've got a piece of the reef, too, that was dug out of the hull. There's um, one somewhere. Yeah, we have one, too, just a tiny little chunk of it. and got photos on my desk right now of the hull. Right. Those are rather um, exciting. I don't know. I, would, I find that almost as hard to look at as earthquake damage photos, I think, sometimes. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, you know, it was... For Alaskans and for so many people, it was in many ways such a traumatic event. It was. It was very defining. And it's it's balancing that with not with not losing sight of there are long term research. Oh, absolutely. Um, answers to be found in this, and and not to get too bogged down in how defining event that was mm-hmm. negatively, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I never really thought about, again, it's one of those things I never really thought about before I started in Alaska, and all of a sudden a collection like that comes in, and it's like, okay, you have to get your head wrapped around something that you personally find kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, it is. It's grim to deal with. Yeah. And I know you have some some things like, we, we did a joint exhibit with Arliss on one of the anniversaries, mm-hmm. it might have been the 20th. Um, and we we um, included some materials from the collection as well as some materials from our collection in that. And um, I know we had a sea otter pelt yes. as part of that from yeah. one of them had died as a result of the spill. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, it struck me as so odd. I, I don't even know what made me wander downstairs. Maybe it was because at that time we didn't have a lot of materials on the spill in our right. holdings. Some of the collections that we have now that I regard as strengths hadn't walked in the door yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to, to fill up the exhibit cases, and I went, okay, they might have something. <clears throat> and it was a shock to me to realize just the sheer breadth of types of materials. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, I, had, I hadn't really been familiar with our list to that point. Mm-hmm. To me, it was just another library, albeit a natural resources-oriented one from, agent, from governmental agencies. And then to realize, no, you have like animal mounts. <laughs> Apparently, oil samples, <laughs> pieces of rock. Smithsonian <laughs> actually did a really nice write up two months ago. Oh, I saw that. Own. That was really great. We're going to have to yeah. share the link on the podcast because mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that. I was really impressed by yeah. that. So, yeah. So, is there anything you think uh, you think people, I mean, you've kind of talked about what you wish people would use a little bit more of. Is there anything that um, you kind of want to say about Arliss as a as a organization in terms of access or how people get to your stuff? How do they even find it's there? 
I mean, is it pretty much just Google? Is it the is it the library catalog? Or? Everything that's cataloged is in the Alaska Library catalog. Okay. And part of my job mission is to get as much of the um, Exxon Valdez stuff digitized as we can. So more and right. more of that collection is becoming becoming digitized. Right. Um, I wish more people knew our list was there. It's okay. very much a word of mouth. Right, and thing. you've got such phenomenal resources. And it's such that... a cool resource, and so few people know about it that I really wish there was a good way to get the word out about that. <laughs> well, you know, I think every kind of unique special library or archives has that challenge. I'm because, sure. you know, people assume libraries do certain things, and then they don't really think beyond that, or they, they don't start thinking about in-depth right. sources. But, you know, I suspect anybody search, searching at this point, a serious researcher doing the Exxon Valdez oil spill, is you are probably got to be fairly high on their list of right. places to go. We're the, official, we're the official repository right. for the trustee council stuff. Right. So if you're asking the trustee council for resources, they'll be rooted to us. Mm-hmm. So that, that's helpful. And there are other collections in the state. The state archives, of course, has a lot of the legal records yes, from the case. Do. From the state's viewpoint, certainly. They, I think yes. they gave out of the attorney general's office. We have a few collections mm-hmm. from organiz- local organizations or individuals that yes. had some sort of engagement. Mm-hmm. In, in it. Those are very definitely kind of really focused right. ones. Either people who are doing cleanup mm-hmm. or politicians who are seeing the space right. and, and, and seeing that. So I, th- I think we were, I don't know if we did that or not. I think we were talking about doing a statewide guide to primary sources on the Exxon Valdez oil spill and suddenly I'm drawing a complete blank as to whether or not we ever did that. Apparently I'm going to have to if I didn't now because I've just committed myself to it. <laughs> And you can bet you'll be my first phone call. (laughs) So, okay. Well, thank you. Absolutely. This was fun. This has been very fun. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Archiving at K. In July, we'll be taking a look at some of the grant projects we've been doing here for the last year or so at the Consortium Library Archives.